All right. So, um, you can bring the lights up there if you want to, Eli. Thank you for that. Um, So, before we begin this evening, um, I want to say a special uh, word of blessing, as as, uh, a lot of you already know. Um, This weekend was not only Thanksgiving, it was also um, a wonderful opportunity for our church to grow. Um, We believe in all kinds of church growth. And so, just a couple of days ago, Abigail Rose Hamilton joined our church. Um, So we bid our biggest congratulations to Nicole and Dan um, on the birth of their beautiful daughter. Uh, Do you remember off the top of your head what the stats were um, on... On Abigail, she's seven ten, right? Um, Justin says she runs a four three forty, which is really really good. Um, so we are celebrating with um, with Nicole and Dan, um, and uh, we just got back literally from a weekend in Ohio um, that uh, we were able to spend with my side of the family. Um, it was. It always goes way too short, you know. These these times of uh, of family celebration always go really really quickly, and so literally we got on the road way later than I wanted to, and and arrived and immediately came here, uh, which is why I'm preaching in sweatpants today. So don't judge me. All right. So we're going through this uh, this series called Whole Team Winning, um, and as we begin tonight, I want to ask the room: uh, Who do you think? is the best actor or actress in Hollywood. Throw, throw one out. Best actor or actress in Hollywood. In movies. Best actor or actress in movies or television. Yes. Chris Pratt. Okay. Why do you think Chris Pratt is the best? Because he's awesome. All right. Fair enough. Who else? Bradley Cooper. Why? He just sucks you into the movie. Yes. He's, he's one that's multidimensional in his talents. Yeah, who else? Anyone? Martin Freeman. The acting that he does with his eyebrows. Now, that's an underrated talent. What is Marcus Freeman in? Martin Freeman. Marcus Freeman's our defensive coordinator. Martin Freeman, Watson, Bilbo in the Hobbit, yes. Very underrated eyebrow actor. I like that. Anyone else? What's that? Got nothing. Okay, so there are many ways for people to become great actors and actresses. And, and methods of, of acting. I've always appreciated the mastery that actors and actresses have, for example, over their emotions. You know, the, the ability to cry on cue, to me, is incredible. And to not make it look fakey, right? To make it look actually natural that you are crying. And so there's a lot of coaching methods that actors and actresses will go through in order to achieve how to play a particular role as best as they possibly can. And one of the the methods that is used for achieving these roles is called method acting. In a method acting practice, 
the actor or actress tries to become that character all the time. So rather than just showing up to the set on the day of their shoot and reading the lines as that, that character that they're playing, a method actor will see the script and see the character and then try to do more than just get inside the character's head. They will try to literally become that character all the time. And so for however long the, the studio is shooting that movie, that actor or actress is being that character wherever they go, in their personal life, at home, with their families. They are being that person so that when they get on camera, it's natural. So that they're not really acting as if they are someone else on the character. They are being that character all the time. So take, for example, um, Captain Jack Sparrow uh, from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, In order to channel Captain Jack Sparrow, um, what's his name? Uh, What's that? Johnny Depp. Yeah, I almost said uh, Orlando Bloom, but that, that wasn't right. Uh, No, different guy. Um, In order to channel Captain Jack Sparrow, what Johnny Depp did was act like Jack Sparrow all the time. So you can imagine him in his personal life, um, half drunk, stumbling around, being Jack Sparrow all the time. And there have been a number of times where an actor or actress takes method acting to the extreme. For example, in the movie The Machinist, um, Christian Bale plays this sinister uh, killer who who is a sleep-deprived blue-collar worker. And so in order to play this character, um, Christian Bale, who's 30 at the time, he for four months embarked on a strict diet of only water, coffee, and one apple a day for four months to lose 65 pounds so that on camera he could portray this emaciated, drug-ridden, you know, sinister character. Four months eating that small diet to lose 65 pounds in order to be that character. Okay, that's not just a guy who's showing up on set being like... All right, so what are my lines? All right, and get in character. No, this guy is living as the machinist for months. Another uh, similar story was Tom Hanks. How many of you have seen the movie Castaway? Okay, a few of you. In this movie, Tom Hanks uh, plays a character whose plane goes down, and he is a castaway on a deserted island. And so... In order to play the role, uh, he gained and then lost 50 pounds. And during this time where where the shoot is taking place, he refused to cut his hair. He refused to bathe. He even allowed himself to get a nasty staph infection and then just let this go. So he is letting himself go so that he can accurately portray a guy who actually looks like he is stranded on a deserted island. 
I can only imagine what it was like living with him while he is putting himself in this role and totally letting himself go. Smelling like pure death. Okay, I just got off the road, and so I'm like, I smell bad. Don't anybody hug me today. Imagine that going on for four months. And then you have Tom Hanks. Um, Or Kate Winslet is is another example. Kate Winslet was in a movie in 2008 called The Reader. And this particular role in The Reader got her an Academy Award and um, an Oscar. And so in this, uh, this movie, she plays a Nazi guard who is on trial for her deeds during the war. Um, and so Kate Winslet, who is British, plays this German, uh, this German guard. And so offset, during her normal life, she spoke with a German accent all the time. Um, She said in an interview that she did this at home, and even when she was reading her children bedtime stories, she was reading her children the bedtime story in a German accent, which I'm sure led to a bit of confusion from the kids, like, Mommy, what are you doing? But that's how dedicated she was to the craft. In order to fully play this role, she's German all the time. All the time, German. But perhaps one of the... um, the most um, uh, effective, two effective examples of method acting was Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger playing the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen, how many of you have seen The Dark Knight? Okay, when The Dark Knight came out, I was in college, and I went and saw this movie in the theater over and over and over again. Okay, and for a college student... Affording that was a challenge. My wife did the same thing. She said, I would rather eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and afford to continue going to this movie because it was that good, okay? She went four times uh, to the theater. His character as the Joker is, in my opinion, the single greatest villain of any movie I have ever seen. He plays this psychopath joker so well, so effectively, that it blows the mind. But sadly, it is said that the reason why he was able to play this role so well is because he literally drove himself crazy in order to play it. He would lock himself in solitary confinement for weeks at a time. There's um, notes that he would scribble like a crazy person while he was locked up in a room by himself. For a month, he locked himself in a room and drove himself so crazy that um, a lot of people theorize that this is one of the things that may have led to him committing suicide not long after he portrayed the Joker in this role. He played this role so effectively, so well, 24-7 as the Joker, that it changed who he was. He literally became this crazy person, and it drove him mad. And so a method actor is one who looks at a role and says, there's something that I want to accomplish in playing this role, and so the only way that I can accomplish it The only way that I can do this effectively is if I do this all the time. It's not enough to just simply show up on set, play the character, and then leave and become my normal self the rest of the time that I'm not on set. 
the only way for me to do on set what I'm supposed to do on set is if I'm also being that at home, at the store, when I'm walking my dog. Imagine Johnny Depp walking his dog through his neighborhood as Captain Jack Sparrow, okay? But that's what he did. They say the only way for me to be on set, what I'm supposed to be, is if I am that everywhere else. My friends, the same is true for us as Christians, as evangelists, as ministers of the gospel. It is not enough for us to simply show up on Sunday or tune in on Sunday, receive the word sing songs of worship together, have some great conversations, and then leave here and go and be our normal selves the rest of the week. If we are going to be on set the way that we're supposed to be, we have to be that all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have to become every day what we are trying to accomplish. So we're going to see in the book of Acts kind of what that looks like. So turn in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is uh, the story of the early church. Okay, so we're going to look at verses 11 through 26 of, uh, of chapter 1. So right before this, Jesus ascends into heaven. Okay, he's given the great commission. He, uh, he ascends into heaven. His disciples are watching. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, the reason why we start here is because I want us to get a very clear picture of what the early church looked like in terms of its humble beginnings. Okay, and, and this kind of ties in with what we talked about with Leicester City last week. You know, Leicester City had statistically very, very slim odds to win the English Premier League. 5,000 to 1, right? And so the, the odds for them to accomplish that were very low. The same is true for this group of people in the beginning of the book of Acts. Okay, this was not a group of powerful people, influential people. This was not a group of movers and shakers. This is a very small group. After the ascension of Jesus, the disciples all return to Jerusalem and they posse up. So we've got the ten apostles, and then here we see that they appoint a new apostle, Matthias, to take the place of Judas, because Judas had uh, betrayed Jesus, and so they say, all right, we need, to, we need to replace Judas, so let's Seek the Lord and take a vote, and Matthias is chosen. So, the ten apostles, the newest apostle, Matthias, Jesus' family, and the rest of the believers. And, and look at what it says in verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So we're talking about a group of about 120 people. Now, if we really think about that, okay, that is an incredibly humble beginning, okay? Now, today, Christianity is worldwide, okay? It is the number one religion in the world. Billions and billions of people have come to faith in Jesus. It began in the early church with 120. And and think about how crazy that is as well when we consider the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has just completed three years of public ministry. And in this time, he has impacted directly tens of thousands of people, from his miracles to his teaching, in his travels from place to place and town to town and city to city. There are tens of thousands of people that he's directly interacted with. And here, there's only 120. If we were to use the measurables that we're so accustomed to using, right? Like when I went to training for for church planting through the Southern Baptist Convention, they give you measurables that you expect to to hit, okay? These are the church growth measurables that you're expected to have. And there's all these methods that they give you and strategies that they give you for achieving these particular measurables. By the Southern Baptist Convention's measurables, After three years of public ministry, impacting tens of thousands of people, for Jesus to only have 120 people up in this room, the SBC would look at him and be like, so, have you considered going door to door? (laughs) It wasn't working in, in that limited point of view. Which, if I'm being honest, helps me a lot. It is encouraging for a person like me. Because after a few years of doing this, you know, we've been doing this church thing for several years now, we've grown from about two to about 30. Okay, so that's uh, a little bit of growth each year to now we have 30 or 40 people. And if we continued by that same sort of rate, then give us another few years and maybe we'll hit 120. Which means 
when I compare myself to Jesus, I'm not doing all that bad, right? <laughs> not bad at all. But, but here we are in the book of Acts. It's about 35 AD or so, and there's 120 Christians. If we were to read on, we will find out that very quickly, it doesn't stay that way. Okay, very quickly, that changes. In the very next chapter, in chapter 2, 3,000 people are added to their number. Peter stands up and he delivers this sermon, and thousands of people come forward. Okay, that is an effective sermon. Thousands of people. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the early church. As a matter of fact, the early church faced so many challenges that it is miraculous that they survived at all in the ancient world. So, what were some of the challenges faced by the early church? First was the challenge of persecution. The early church faced persecution from a number of sources. Internal sources of persecution and external sources. Um, We talked uh, before about Saul, right? Saul was ravaging the church. We we read from Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 the story of the martyrdom of Stephen and how Saul was in charge of that. And then after that it says he was ravaging the church, dragging people from their homes, throwing them in prison. And then he eventually becomes the Apostle Paul, uh, like we talked about last week. But Saul was the leader of the persecution that came from the Jewish leadership. Um, And that was, in particular, the same persecution that Jesus faced from Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And uh, and so Saul continued what the Pharisees had started um, in his persecution and and dragging the, the Christians out and having them killed. It's seeing them flee across the ancient world. So that's, that's sort of an internal. Externally, the, the church also faced persecution from the Roman Empire. Um, now, at, at the very beginning, the Roman Empire itself didn't really care that much about the church because they were a small, fledgling group of nobodies, right? Here we have 120 people. The Roman Empire at this time could care less about a group of 120 people. They were such a small, insignificant flea compared to the rest of the empire that it took a while for the Romans to really even notice uh, the Christians. And, and we have this picture in our minds, typically, that for 300 years, the church faced nonstop persecution from the Roman Empire. But that really isn't historically accurate. Um, there were periods of time, including here at the beginning, where they were ignored because no one cared. Um, and then there were other periods where there was intense, decimating persecution. Um, the first major persecution occurred under Nero in the 60s. Um, after setting the, the city on fire, he blamed the Christians, and he set about murdering them for a number of reasons, including sick pleasure, scapegoating, and political maneuvering. And most of us, when we think about persecution, we recognize the name Nero. And we identify him with major persecution. Even though he really wasn't the worst of the Roman emperors in terms of persecution. Many regard Emperor Diocletian as the worst. Because under Emperor Diocletian, there was an empire-wide effort to eradicate Christians. So, 
Suffice it to say that on and off, the Roman Empire uh, made things pretty difficult for the church for 300 years. So there's persecution internally, and there's persecution externally. So from all of that, Christianity was up against it constantly. Add to this, in addition to persecution, there was racial tension. Racial tension between Jews and Gentiles. Racial tension is nothing new, okay? We see it playing out uh, in front of us today. It was the very same back here. In addition to this external challenge of persecution, there's this internal challenge of racial tension. Tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because for the very first time in history, Judaism was not the vehicle to salvation any longer. You didn't have to become a Jew in order to be right with God. With the advent of the new covenant, one could be a Christian without being Jewish at all. And so many of the Jews did not take very well to that development. And so there was near constant debate that raged in the early church in various circles about doctrine and practice. And for the very first time, Jews and Gentiles were sharing a place of worship together in the same building, doing the very same things, sharing a faith system, having to accept each other as equals, sharing meals together, okay? That, that was an incredibly difficult step, one that, as we talked about in Acts chapter 10, Jesus himself had to show up in a vision to tell Peter, hey buddy, uh, it's okay for you to eat with Gentiles, okay? Incredibly difficult step for a lot of people to make. There was also disagreement on key doctrines in the early church. And, and this brought great disagreement. So, like, for example, there was a group called the Judaizers. And, and we kind of touched on this already. The Judaizers were among those who were fighting for the retention of Jewish law and practice. They're, they're the ones who were still trying to make the Gentiles follow Judaism in order to be saved. And so there's debates that are raging on things like circumcision, eating meat sacrificed to idols, following the Jewish law, ceremonial cleanliness, etc., etc., So, from the very beginning, this was not a group of people who were completely unified on everything. There were even disagreements among the apostles themselves. Um, The apostle Paul refers to an occasion in Galatians where he had to confront Peter. And he says, I had to oppose him to his face because he was in the wrong. And what was Peter doing? Peter was being a racist. So, Paul had to call him out. There's also the challenge of immorality in the early church. Um, And especially if we read the the letters to the Corinthians, um, the Apostle Paul addressed this quite a few times. Because early Christian converts didn't always immediately change their lifestyle once they became Christians, okay? Uh, The apostles had to teach them that it was wrong for them to have sex with their stepmothers, right? That's the kind of uh, demographic that some of them are dealing with. So there's tremendous amounts of immorality in the church that the apostles are massaging out as they're preaching and teaching. Add to this another challenge, which was lawsuits among believers. So cue the Apostle Paul again. New believers didn't all immediately make best buddies, 
There was infighting and, and cases where believers didn't act any differently than, than the people around them. They, they didn't treat others in the way that Christ would, would have them to be treated. And so the apostles addressed these issues saying, you really need to work this stuff in-house rather than suing each other in court. Then add to that ridicule over their beliefs. Um, surprise, surprise, being made fun of for what you believe is not something that was in, invented in the 20th century, okay? It, it was there from the very beginning. This was a group of Jews and Gentiles hanging out together, worshiping a guy who was publicly crucified just a few months ago. Uh, to put it in the words of a man named Celsus in the 2nd century, he said, Christianity was for only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children for whom it is an evil to have been educated. Man, this guy sounds like the early Richard Dawkins. <laughs> um, at the time, among the elite, Christians were viewed as intellectually vapid. Then add the challenge of administration. And this is something that we read in Acts chapter 6. That as the church grew, it created some real administrative obstacles. The Hellenists and the Hebrews started arguing over the unfair treatment of widows during the distribution of food. And so the disciples realized that the group is getting too large for them to do everything on their own. And so they had to nominate and elect deacons who would oversee these serving ministries. But it's not like they had a seminary degree to help them do this, okay? They didn't have a church growth manual that says, and here are the ways that you can make sure these administrative challenges are figured out. They didn't have a leadership class to take. No one had ever done this before. They just had to figure it out as they went. And add to all that that these are Ordinary, normal, unschooled men and women. They were untrained. They were average Joes. They were nobodies. Jesus did not hand the Great Commission off to a bunch of all-stars, like we talked about last week. There were no English Premier League superstars here. No ministry experience. They were just normal people. So... These are among the many challenges faced by the early church. By all accounts, there is no way, no way that this group should have ever made it more than a few years. They should have been relegated to a corner of a page in history. This should have fizzled out and died just like that. But it didn't. Because no matter what kind of obstacle they faced, no matter what pressure was put on them, no matter what persecution or or obstruction, this church continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It is estimated that by the end of the first century, so by 100 AD, that there were over a million Christians from a group of 10 that started it and then to 120, okay? At that point, one million people was less than 1% of the entire population of the empire. But it didn't stop there. By the end of the second century, it was over two million. By the end of the third century, over five million. 
And by the end of the 4th century, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Okay, so you want to talk about an unlikely story. <laughs> this is it. You want to talk about a story that should have never happened. This is a story that should have never happened. So, how did the early church accomplish this? And what does it mean for us today? We're going to look at three specific things that were true of the early church and hopefully should still be true of us. And if we live these out, I am telling you God is going to do amazing things. So, here's point number one. The early church kept being the church when they left the church. The early church kept being the church when they left the church. You might say that for the early church, the mission started after church. These people were method actors, okay? These people were not those who would say, all right, let's go, let's, uh, let's participate in worship, and then we'll go about our normal lives just as we were before. No, they said, if we're going to be something, we're going to be that something 24-7, 365. This is who we are. We're going to become this character completely. Turn over to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now notice a few things that it says. First, here it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? There, nothing earth-shattering. Right? This means they were sitting under preaching. This is going to the gathering. They are gathering together. The apostles are teaching them the word. The apostles are expounding on the scriptures. And it says that they devoted themselves to that. And that is, in and of itself, a very important step. For some, that's the first step to take. Some people need to take that step of devoting themselves to the gathering of the local body. Okay? During COVID, we had to shut everything down, and it was weird, man. It, it was odd. Okay? It showed we were not built for this. Okay? Church was never meant to be something that we experience online. Now, I'm very thankful. Okay? I'm thankful for the technology that we had, or else what would we have done? You know? We were just shut down completely. I, I'm very, very glad that we didn't have to do that, okay? Because of technology, we were able to still stay connected, at least in some way, with one another through the months that we had to do that. But then, by the grace of God, we were able to come back together. And coming back together revealed to all of us, this is how it was intended to be. We were meant to be gathered together as a church. 
And part of this is in devoting ourselves to the teaching of the word. And and I want to say that you can get good teaching anywhere. Okay, We live in a time where we have access to all the information in the world. Okay, You can go onto your podcast app on your phone and you can find the best preachers in the entire world right at your fingertips. And so there's a difference between teaching and preaching and pastoring. A podcast cannot pastor you. Only in the local church can you be pastored. And so for some people, they need to take that step of saying, I'm going to devote myself to the gathering of the believers. I'm going to devote myself in, in a permanent way to coming in person and building relationships and sitting under good preaching and pastoring in order to grow in my faith. For some people, it's a struggle to devote yourselves to church. But that's a first step. But it doesn't stop there. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship. And then it says, and then to the breaking of bread and fellowship. So fellowship and breaking of bread. This means that they were devoting themselves to relationship together. They are eating together. They are building real friendships Together. They're spending time with one another. They're learning what the burdens are that are shared in the group. They're, they're learning what the other people are going through. They are seeing real time the ways that they can serve one another. They're, they're growing in affection for one another. They're becoming actual friends with each other. And remember I talked about before that there was tension that, that was there. Real tension because they looked across the aisle at each other and saw people that they're not supposed to be friends with. But now they're devoting themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now they're coming together at the table and they're saying, let's eat, let's talk, let's get to know one another, let's build a friendship here. That's part uh, of the necessary step of becoming what we're supposed to become all the time. Guys, I love what we did on Thursday. On Thursday for Thanksgiving Day, we said, anyone who doesn't have a place, come over to our house. And we had an awesome time. We had, we had a group of people. I think all of them are sitting in here. Um, welcome again. Good to see you. Um, sitting at our table at our house. And we ate food and we played games and we talked and we laughed and we had fun. And that is part of being the church. Okay? That doesn't happen on a Sunday evening. That, that happened on a Thursday at my house. And that's part of what these people were devoting themselves to. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And then it says, and to prayer. These were people that devoted themselves to prayer for each other, for their city, for the lost for needs and for praises and and for just closeness with God. If you were to read through the book of Acts, you will see that preceding nearly every great moment in the history of this church, you find people gathered and praying. This is one of the reasons why I'm really excited about what's happening on Monday nights now. Um, And I'll mention this again at the end, but starting this past Monday, we had our first captain's meeting. 
And, and this was just a time for us guys to gather together online and share with each other what, what prayer needs we personally had. And then we prayed together. We prayed for each other and with each other. And there's a, a sense that, that I felt and others felt too that, man, this is, this is essential. This is needed. This is necessary. These people here devoted themselves to prayer. Uh, if you remember, I've been talking about this, okay? This is an opportunity for you to write down the names of people that you are praying for. By name, specifically, because you know what they're going through. You know what's happening in their lives. You know how they're struggling. You know the good things that they're celebrating. You know how to be a friend to them because you see them and you interact with them and you know them. And so you pray for opportunity to minister to them. Like the early church devoted themselves to prayer. We must be a church that's devoted to prayer. Not just on Sunday, okay? If we're going to be true method actors here, we can't just devote ourselves to praying together on a Sunday evening. We also have to be doing that when we go home. We have to speak the language of prayer when we're by ourselves. When we're in the closet praying to God alone. And then when we're on the phone with someone in our church praying together. When we log on to Zoom on a Monday night for our captain's meeting and we're talking and we're praying. When we're sitting around the table with our families, with our wives, our kids, we pray. We have to be devoted to the language of prayer. And then it says this in verse 46. As they were doing all these things, it says, And day by day. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. So this is both places, okay? They go and they gather, and then in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day. That right there is the key. Day by day. It cannot just be on Sunday. It cannot just be Sunday and Thursday. It cannot just be Sunday and Thursday and Monday. It must be day by day. Day by day. In the temple, yes, but also in their homes and also out in public. And we know that this was in public because we read that they find favor with all the people. They didn't just go to church. They were the church every single day in their oikos, in the marketplace. And God is adding to their number day by day because they are personally affecting others day by day. In their ministry, day by day, as they interact with the people that they're praying for in their oikos, those people are seeing what they're doing with the rest of the church. And those people are like, wow, that looks awesome. Tell me more. Sign me up. It is only as we do this day by day, it is only as we devote ourselves to these things day by day, that the Lord will add to our number 
may God add to our number day by day. But the only way that that's going to happen is if we don't just show up on set and do the thing and act for a few minutes and then go back to our normal lives. We've got to be method actors 24-7 who are doing this constantly day by day by day. Point number two. Opposition fueled them rather than slowing them down. Opposition fueled them rather than slowing them down. So, uh, turn now to chapter 4. Chapter 4, we'll look at verses 23 through 31. Leading up to this, Peter and John have been arrested, and they are uh, before the council of the Sanhedrin, and they are told, it says they are charged, to not speak any longer in the name of Jesus. So, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Here was a people that, as we talked about, were opposed and persecuted. A people that faced internal and external pressures and tensions. And when they faced this opposition... They don't panic. They don't start lobbying for their rights. They're not starting to defend themselves. What they do is they gather together and they pray and they ask God to continue to give them boldness to preach the word of Christ. It says in verse 23, when they were released, this is Peter and John, okay? Peter and John are released from the council of the Sanhedrin. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. So, they face this opposition and immediately what they do is they go to their squad. They're like, all right, here's what's going on. And what does the squad do? When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. They brought this need uh, of the opposition that they were facing, and they said, all right, let's posse up and get on our knees before God and pray. As they're facing persecution from all these sources, as they're facing ridicule, as they're facing threats, as they're facing opposition, rather than focusing on how difficult this was or how much they were being sinned against or whatever, they pray and they ask God to propel them further. 
This is the attitude that we have to take as we are trying day by day to be a church that is ministering to others. Let me promise you, there will be times when it's not easy. There will be cost to this, all right? As I'm standing up here all excited, being like, hey, fill out the names and and pray for your oikos. Let me promise you, there's going to be some awkward situations, okay? There's going to be some moments where people look at you sideways. There's going to be some moments where maybe your boss comes and says to you, hey, stop doing that at work, all right? You need to be quiet. There are going to be people who unfortunately will will take what you hear and reject and go, hey, uh, I didn't know that I was friends with a preacher, so maybe let's not hang out tomorrow. These are types of things that are going to happen. As we try to remain faithful to what God has called us to be faithful to, we're going to face opposition. When we do, the step that we need to take They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and prayed. It fueled them to pray together. That is why we have a body that we're a part of. This church exists for the mutual support of each other as we each face opposition. As Peter and John face opposition, they go to the squad and they say, let's all pray. As you face opposition, you come to the squad and you say, let's pray. This is one of the reasons why on Monday nights in our captain's meeting, we ask the question, how can we pray for you as you minister to your oikos? Okay, here's, here's an opportunity for you to be like, hey, yeah, um, I had a conversation with my neighbor who I'm praying for. And he cussed me out and told me he never wanted to see me again. All right, let's pray for your angry neighbor, (laughs) you know? We gather together and we pray and it fuels us rather than slowing us down. Whatever challenge we might face, whatever it might be, fear, temptation, ridicule, not knowing what the answers are to questions, not having opportunity, whatever it might be, The enemy is going to attack us. Period. Full stop. The enemy is going to attack. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to let the opposition stop us? Or will we pray for boldness to continue to be the messenger of God to our oikos? Final point. Like the rest of the Bible, it was about Jesus. It's not about them. Look in Acts chapter 5 now. Acts chapter 5, in what I think is one of the wildest passages in all of Scripture. Beginning in verse 27. Um, The apostles at this point are arrested again. Okay, they've been commanded, stop doing what you're doing. And the apostles don't stop, (laughs) of course. And so they're arrested again. Verse 27. When they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. We told you to stop. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, the blood of Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, 
We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These guys are charged. Don't speak this gospel of Jesus any longer. The disciples boldly respond, Listen, uh, we can't do that because it's true and we have to obey God instead of you. Now remember, they're speaking to the same people that killed Jesus, right in front of them, okay? So this is the definition of bold. They're speaking to the people that killed Christ. Who, by the way, when they killed Christ, when Pilate said, uh, who should I bring out, uh, this man Jesus or this man Barabbas? And Pilate's like, well, why do you want this guy to die? And they all chant, let his blood be upon us. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And then here in front of the disciples, they're like, well, wait a second. You're trying to put this man's blood on us. Well, you chanted that a few weeks ago, so I don't know what the opposition here is. But literally, they're in front of these people who put Jesus to death, and they say, we're going to do the same thing to you if you don't shut up. And the apostles are like, the thing is, this is who we are. We can't not do this. We, we have to obey God rather than men. And what you have done before God is on you. And so then enter this, this wise man, Gamaliel, who's like, hey, listen, um, if this is from God, we're not going to be able to stop them. So let them go. And it says that they took Gamaliel's advice, right? They don't put them to death. But it says they beat them, okay? So they torture them. Before, it was a verbal warning. Now they're like, let's add some blood to this warning. Stop it. And the disciples' response to me is 
mind-blowing. It is absolutely insane. It says, They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And day by day, every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These people refused to break character. No matter what it cost them, they refused to break character because they realized that the story that they were in the middle of was not about themselves. They realized, this is not my story. I am called to be this follower of Christ, and it's about him. It's not about me. And so I'm willing to sacrifice my own body to play this role. Whatever I got to do. Do I have to starve? Do I have to be beaten? Do I, do I have to face pain? I will do that to be this. Because this is what I'm called to be. Everything is about Christ. For these disciples, it was not about their skills or their lack thereof, like we talked about last week. It wasn't about their giftedness. It wasn't about their preaching, their serving, or their miracles. It wasn't about them overcoming. It was about Christ. Christ was at the center of everything. He was doing all the work through the Holy Spirit in them. Christ was teaching. Christ was doing miracles. Christ was rescuing and changing lives. And because they made everything about him, they grew miraculously. They grew miraculously. Because Christ was the fuel. Whatever it cost them to play the role, they were going to play the role. Is that true of our lives? Or are we each trying to be the main character of our own story? If a movie was made about me, what would the movie be about? And who would the main character be in a movie about me? I would hope that the main character in a movie about me would be Jesus that the narrative of this movie would be that dude lived his whole life for Christ and he would be embarrassed that a movie is being made about him. We need to turn the mirror on ourselves and examine, is Christ the main character of my story? Is he the one who determines all of my steps, the decisions that I make, are they being made with him in mind? Does he just fit somewhere in there? Do I have this expectation that I'm just going to show up to the set and do the Jesus thing and then go about my own hopes and dreams and plans, the things that I want, the things that I'm working for? Or is my life going to be completely centered on the role of a Christ follower? I'm not saying that this requires that we sacrifice so much that all of us need to drop everything and move to a village in Argentina, okay? Unless God calls you there, okay? My, my younger brother, we were talking this weekend, he and his wife and daughter are planning to move to Brazil to be missionaries. Um, and they take their first vision trip um, in March. And then after that, they're hoping to be in Brazil by 2023, indefinitely. So they're selling their house, they're selling their possessions, and uh, learning Portuguese, and off they go. Are we willing 
to make a sacrifice like that if God called us to? Not if we're the main character of our own story. We need to examine ourselves every day and ask, is everything I'm doing about me or is it about him? Am I just showing up on set or am I a method actor? Am I going to my job primarily for the paycheck or am I going to my job primarily to be a gospel representative to a group of lost co-workers? Am I studying my major in this field in order that I can be wildly successful and rich? Or am I studying my major in this field in order to be a gospel light in this field because I know that this is a field that desperately needs the gospel? You may or may not be called to a secluded jungle, but maybe you're called to the medical field. Maybe you're called to teaching. Maybe you're called to a courtroom. Maybe you're called to a classroom. Maybe you're called to a living room or a dining room. Are you willing to take whatever it is that you're doing and put it in the name of Jesus? Are you working for your own acclaim or accomplishments? Or are you working in order to have a greater circle of influence for the kingdom? Be the best at whatever you're doing, please. Don't slack off. That's another sermon for another time. Be at the top, but do so in order that you might reach others for Christ. Do not just show up on Sundays or on Thursdays or on Mondays or all of the above and expect that that is all that you are called to do. We are all called to this 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And day by day, as we devote ourselves to him, day by day, may he add to our number. And so, I've been harping on these things a lot, but I'm going to continue to do so. I printed more of these out, okay? I did it. So, grab one of these from the table in the back, okay? Uh, This is our Oikos card. On this, you will find instructions for what exactly to do that you can begin to pray about whose names to write down. Hopefully, some of you have done this already. Hopefully, you, you already have one of these with names picked out. Who am I praying for? Who am I asking the Lord to give me opportunity to minister to? Who am I serving? Who am I bringing before God every day? Who am I saying to to my church family, hey, pray for me as I minister to so-and-so? Do that. Um, Next, I'm excited to announce that our dwell material is here. Okay, and I think most of you have already grabbed some of the stuff from the back. If you're watching online right now, come next Sunday and do this. Okay, so uh, I've been hyping this up for the last uh, few weeks. Um, Our materials are here, so we've got... Uh, a card for everyone. It's got the picture on the front and the verse on the back. Um, a couple of uh, thoughts about that verse on here. There's also a keychain card that's got the verse on the back and the picture on the front. And there's also temporary tattoos. Enough for everyone to take four or five of them because I have read that these things don't last for longer than a few days. So uh, put it in some place where it won't get rubbed off too badly, but it's probably not going to last for very long. So grab a, a handful of them so that you can reapply throughout the month. And we're going to use these uh, through the month of December in order to um, memorize John 1.14a. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. As we look forward 
to uh, celebrating the birth of Christ next month, um, this verse uh, is perfect for that. And so throughout the month of December, you will see on our social media um, a lot that is um, pointing back towards this verse and the thoughts surrounding it. So grab one of these, take it home, and we're going to begin to work on this through the month of December, uh, memorizing, memorizing this as a church. And then finally, um, the captain's meeting on Monday evenings. We had our first one this past Monday, and I thought it went awesome. Um, uh, Every Monday at 7.30, uh, the men of the church will be gathering together on Zoom and praying together. And so if you want to be a part of that, um, please let me know uh, and and join us in that. Let us be people that are dedicated to this 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Let us be method actors, not just set actors. God has called us to a life that is entirely dedicated to him. So let's be that way. And let's let the mission start after church. Let's pray.